All right, we're doing it. Hi, Let's everybody. It. Hi, hello, Soma. Hello. Hi, Sarah. Uh, welcome to Masters of Social Gastronomy. I'm Sarah Lohman, culinary historian and author of the book, Eight Flavors. This over here, maybe below me, depending on how you're looking, is Jonathan Soma. He's the co-founder of the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Brainery and pretty much in charge of the Department of Data Journalism at Columbia. What I guess I should tell you what we're doing tonight if you haven't been here before. Master's Social Gastronomy is our kind of monthly lecture about food history and science. Every month we pick a topic and go for it. And this month our topic is mushrooms, spooky Halloween mushrooms. So I'm going to go first and my topic is I'm looking at some mushrooms that are popular in folklore and fairy tales, mostly from Europe. And uh, then we have a little section in the middle called story time where we just do a little something else that maybe didn't fit into our main talk. And that's where I'm going to give you some basics to begin mushroom foraging and not be scared, but also not die. Um, so what are you talking about? Or do you want to talk about myself? Because oh, cool. that's really the most fascinating thing to me and all of you. <laughs> so uh, do you not want gonna... me to talk about that thing about you in my presentation and just leave it to you? Just leave it to me. Just leave okay, it to great. me. You know, we can't all have presentations about me. So that's true. There has that's to be true. Some sort of limit. Um, so then you're going to talk towards the end here. And what are you talking about tonight? Uh, so for all of you who are scared of foraging for mushrooms or who refuse to leave your apartment because of fear of COVID, uh, I will give you the hot tips on how and how not to grow your own mushrooms at home. And a little bit I've, of science about like what the hell a mushroom is. So I've also, I've thought about getting those mushroom kits. They seem really cool. So I'm, I want to know more. Um, it's, yeah, it's easy. It's, I mean, you could just skip my lecture and go on Amazon, but... <laughs> Probably my lecture will be more exciting than yeah. watching mushrooms pop out of a box. Well, Probably I'm, not. I'm so excited about it. Um, are you doing anything on Saturday, Soma? Do you have plans? Uh, man, if only there were was some sort of plan that I could have. Is there anything that, I don't know, Sarah, is that anything That wasn't happening? a loaded question. I'm really genuinely curious like how people are celebrating Halloween these days. Oh, it's it's Halloween, eh? Um, On Saturday, uh, yeah. I mean, it is, children, it is. Putting like, razor blades in candy so that I can kill my own child, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> Any of you who were at my candy lecture last night understands that joke. For everyone else, it probably just seems really dark, really dark. It's um, it is, you're right though, that it, in that it's not just Halloween on Saturday. It is a triple thruple holiday on Saturday because it is Halloween. And then what else? I don't know. Why don't you, why don't you tell me? It's daylight savings. Well, I guess that's is technically that early I mean, Sunday morning. Daylight savings sounds boring. Isn't there some way to make daylight savings more exciting? Isn't there yes, like- Soma. Savings? Yes, Soma. Like, let's say you have a day where you have an extra hour. Don't you want to use that hour in the, in like the most fullest way you possibly can, Soma? Yes. Yes. <laughs> tell, tell me more. Sign me up. So you can use that hour um, as the hour that God forgot. Now, I'm just going to talk about this briefly. I, I like promised I wasn't going to mention it this year, but I'm like, oh, but it's coming up. I don't so, think it's possible for you to not talk about it. I think you're legally required to do so. Well, that's because this is a holiday that I've now been celebrating. This is the 16th year of the hour that God forgot. Okay, what is it? So this is a holiday that corresponds with daylight savings. 
And what you do on the hour that God forgot is you do a power hour. That is one shot of light beer, not your like heavy stout ale, not whiskey. Although someone did do a champagne power hour once, which is a lot, but just a shot of light beer every minute for an hour. It's set to music. It's really fun. You do it as a group and you start at 1 a.m. on daylight savings night. You do the power hour, 60 shots of beer, and then you turn the clock back. It's and like it's it never happened. It never happened. You've got all the way until March until God remembers that that hour happened. So it is a free hour. Now, you would think that this holiday is something that existed, but it was created in 2004 by my dear friend, Jeff Marcy, who's in the beard, and our mutual friend, um, Rich Summer, who, if he looks familiar, Rich Summer is Rich Summer of TV. He usually plays a jerk. He was the jerk Harry Crane in Mad Men. He was one of those kind of jerk friends in The Devil Wears Prada. He was the jerk husband in Glow. Um, and he was one of the jerks from across the lake in the Wet Hot American Summer prequel. And I think that's pretty much his entire career. But basically what happened is in 2004, when I was still in college, Jeff and Rich were in a bar together and they were talking about power hours. And Rich said, I've never done a power hour. And Jeff said, you've never done a power hour? And then they both realized that that night was daylight savings and the holiday was born. Now, the other people that, that went into this is me. Oh, we talked about wearing costumes tonight and Soma, I see that you didn't. But do you see that that's me in that picture? I'm 21 years old. I decided to dress as my 21 year old self tonight. Amazing. Isn't it? I'm gonna have to go get a costume. My costume is me. Um, the other fella in the photo with Rich, this is, this is me, I'm 21, it's 2004, that's my apartment, is my friend Brian, and he's the one that, that hand makes a score for our power hour every one of these 16 damn years. So, um, of course, our power hour is not going to look like this, but um, yeah, this has been 16 years running. I've, I've, nobody's made every single year. I've missed two years out of the 16. Um, and we're going to do over Zoom this year, and it's going to be in Halloween night. Costumes are encouraged. And should you want to do this thing um, in your own homes with your friends over Zoom, you can go to bankbrian.com slash power hours, and you can download yourself a power hour party mix that will get you through that 60 minutes with music. Again, light beer, use that hour to its fullest. Like, cause what else are you gonna do? Sleep, boring, hour the God forgot. That's all. It's perfect. What, do you get something you wanna tell us about, Soma? Uh, probably, probably just cats. cats. Oh, hey, look. Um, so unlike most of the time, I don't have a million cats to pitch to you all. Uh, I think there are three that are up on our adoptable pets page, uh, but maybe only two of them are still available. Uh, so great. if you want some kittens, let's be honest, they're a little bit bigger than they were in that picture. They're just sweet and they're shy and they're named after the Smashing Pumpkins album. Um, so you should adopt those kittens. And if you want a feral cat, I have one of those too. Um, she's fat, she's cross-eyed, she's great. I just want to say that Amanda Bennett says in the chat that she has two of your kittens. I love the implication that you birthed them. They're the best. They are monsters and I love them. Let's get these babies adopted. Let's get them in the homes. And other people are showing their cats and sadly, I can't see them. Awful. 
It's fine. Well, it's because I'm about to talk, so I can't let, you know, when you're talking, I'll look at people's cats. All right. Hi, kitties. Sarah, can you do me a favor? Yeah, what? Can you get, can you get off the stage? Allow me to introduce our first speaker of the evening, Sarah Lohman of Being Sarah Lohman. Please welcome hey. her to the stage. Hi. All right, that's my cue. So let's get down to brass tacks and talk about some mushrooms. Um, okay. So the first mushroom I want to talk about is I, I want to sort of talk about mushrooms and culture. I have to admit, my main presentation isn't as much about eating, but it was more... Sometimes we pitch topics based on things we want to learn more about. So let's just say these were like questions that I was a little bit curious about. And one of them, my, my first and most important question was um, what kind of mushroom is toad? Hold on, I'm getting rid of this. Okay. What kind of mushroom is toad from Mario Brothers? Can I interject? And, oh yeah, please. Isn't that the wrong coloring on his hat? Isn't that oh, the do you opposite? think it's opposite? Well, let's, yeah, that's that's effed up. I didn't show you that yet. Hang on. That's effed up. Just, just. I, I mean, I mean, I guess I it's feel probably betrayed because so I used the same imagery that you did on my presentation. That's about the exact same thing, and uh, I just noticed this now. So I was aghast. I just you used the same man in this costume waving. It is a really ridiculous image, which is why we both picked it. So there was a big debate recently whether the the cap on Toad's head was his head or if it was a hat. And there was an interview published fairly recently, one of the producers of one of the more recent Mario games, um, where the producer was like, it's his head. You know, I'll leave you to figure out how that works. I guess he means in like, you know, the, the biology of the, the viscera of a mushroom human. Um, but apparently there was a big divide online as to whether it was his head or a hat. So this artist, Alex, um, imagined, envisioned what he would look like underneath if that was his hat, which I love because it's just horrific. So toad is a species of real mushroom called, as April called it in the um, chat, a fly agaric. Um, their Latin name is Amanita. Hold on, literally whipping things out of the way. Um, Moscaria. And they are probably one of the most famous and well-known mushrooms. And they appear all over culture, um, all over history and all over the world too. And I think part of it is because they are such a visually stunning mushroom. When they pop out of the ground, they have this thin white veil over them, which then breaks and then turns into these white dots on this bright red flesh. Now I had always heard these mushrooms were extremely poisonous. But when I looked that up, that wasn't quite true. Now, I have to say that when we say the word poisonous, I think we normally associate that with, with death, with something that will kill you. But lots of things are poisons. Um, one of my favorite things that I've heard recently is, you know, that cartoonist has a couple books on the Instagram, has little aliens, the little beings, and they talk about life. I love it when they like go to the mild poison dispensary and talk to the mild poison expert when they're ordering like cocktails, because alcohol is just a mild poison, any kind of drugs, like marijuana, just a fun, mild poison, right? So, but this isn't quite that, but it's not gonna kill you. Let me, let me start by saying that. 
most mushrooms that are considered poisonous won't kill you. So that might even be like lesson one if you're nervous about starting to mushroom forage. Most mushrooms that are poisonous are going to give you some bad stomach cramps um, and probably the poops, but like they won't kill you, kill you. However, fly argaric is one of the few mushrooms that's also a psych, Nathan Pyle, thank you, Michelle, um, that is also a psychedelic uh, mushroom. So it's not the ones that we normally refer to as um, magic mushrooms. Those are, I always forget how to pronounce that, but I bet you know Soma. Sayo, you don't know Yeah, that Soma? sounds perfect. That's great. Are you a, are you a, a medical solutions yep. expert? <laughs> Thank you, Chloe. Psycho, no, psilocybin. There it is. There you go. I like that Chloe's just shouting, psilocybin, psilocybin, psilocybin. So it's not those mushrooms. That's all I'm trying to say. Those are the ones that people take and like have fun usually. These like, I did go to a site called maryjane.com that like, had gave dosing instructions on these. And certainly let me say this too, it has been used in various cultures around the world because these are like on every continent um, for its, um, its psychotic properties, basically. The fact that it makes you, <laughs> some of you are just yelling at me in the screen. So different cultures have used this because it, it does have hallucinogenic properties. At the same time, and maybe this is just me being a party pooper because I don't really like being high because I don't like being out of control. Um, there is, it's wildly unpredictable. It has a lot to do with like the age of the mushroom versus your body weight. So it's really hard to dose. Um, and the effects can range from mild nausea to twitching and drowsiness, um, low blood pressure, sweating, salivation, auditory and visual distortions, mood changes, Euphoria, relaxation, and loss of equilibrium, like with tetanus. Um, so, like, that doesn't sound really fun to me, but I guess I don't want to yuck your yum of a good time. So, these are on every continent, and people think that it really has to do with the fact that um, they grow on the roots of certain types of trees, largely birch and pine trees. So there are pine tree farms all over the world, in particularly Christian countries that celebrate Christmas. And so a lot of times when those trees are brought to those different countries, the mushroom spores on the roots, the mycelium, come along with it, and then these bright red mushrooms pop up. And they are so visual. Like these are the mushrooms we're first referred to as toadstools too. They appear in folklore and stories all over the planet. In fact, um, ah. so one of the other reasons that I don't recommend you going out and hunting these um, to like get high or whatever is because they do look very similar to another mushroom that will kill you. That is the panther amanita. So this one is not, a, not fun at all and you can die by taking it. And although the cap on this one is sort of beigey, they can get a little more orangey red. But also the toxins within the, um, this guy here, they are not water soluble. I mean, yes, but these are eaten in certain parts of Europe, but they have to be boiled and cooked several times and are kind of complicated to prepare. So they are considered a delicacy. We're actually going to get a little bit more into that too, but you really have to know what you're doing with them um, to get rid of the toxins. So you have a delicious mushroom and not like a party where people start twitching and screaming. Um, the panther amanita too, not only can it kill you 
Um, oh, Soma's going to tell us more. So he's, he's going to tell us a little bit more about this because those, these are the mushrooms that are bizarrely related to who Soma is as a human being. So put a pin in it. Um, but the Panther Amanita too, these, they literally turn you into a raving lunatic and you have to be sedated until the effects of the psychotic toxins wear off and you can also might die. So just don't eat them and don't, if you do, don't tell anybody that I said that you should eat them. Um, they are believed to be the mushrooms that are mentioned in flight by Argaric, not the panther ones, in Alice in Wonderland, because it's believed that even in like Victorian England, um, the sort of effects, the visual auditory distortions were known. So Alice does eat like cakes and potions to so get bigger little, but she also, I believe, takes a bite out of the caterpillar's mushroom um, to change her size too. So it appears in popular fiction as well as Christmas, oddly. So I had never really thought about this. My mom collects vintage Christmas ornaments and she has a couple of like, you know, these classic mushroom red with the white dot mushroom. So especially in Germany, these are part of the Christmas traditions, but like Germany invented like take Christmas, like how we know Christmas in America now, it's half German and half a very select small group of people that were living in New York City in the first half of the 19th century. And together they all created Christmas in the middle of the 19th century. There's a great book about it. The second time I'm recommending it in two days, uh, I'm probably gonna have to, I'll, I'll put it up on my Facebook page. I'll put it up on the MSG Facebook page. It's called The Battle for Christmas. Really, really great. Anyway, this is one of the German traditions that didn't really make it over to America, unlike Christmas trees, um, but is still very much a part of German tradition. So it's known as the Glückspitz. You can correct my pronunciation if you want to. And that literally means lucky mushroom. And it's probably associated with the Christmas holidays because these mushrooms grow on the roots of pine trees. They're also available um, in like the late fall too and early winter. So around the same time that you'd be preparing for the Christmas holiday, you could also be harvesting these mushrooms. I think I even have a picture of that. Yeah, so this is like a cute um, early 20th century card. And they were a common um, uh, Christmas gift too in that a, a gift around the Christmas holidays in Germany, it could be like a basket of forage mushrooms, which I think is such a great Christmas gift. Everyone loves a homemade Christmas gift and to like to give somebody something that you work for and had to find. So again, coming back to the fact that like there are parts of Europe where this is eaten pretty commonly and people are familiar with the ways of preparing them to get rid of the toxins. So look, he's even got his little, oh, I gotta get my pointer out, his little mushroom knife there. But like, as I also mentioned last night in my candy talk, just don't go far down, too far down the rabbit hole of Victorian postcards because then you start finding stuff like this. And I guess this little boy is supposed to be surprised with the light, but he looks like he's screaming in horror as any sane person would should these motherfuckers come marching through your door. Look at this kid's face. This is horrifying. I feel anyway. like they bring good tidings. Do they look like they're bringing good tidings to you? If they rolled up in my apartment, I'd be like, what's up, guys? <laughs> if they rolled up I'm in your apartment, down. you would scream just like this little kid. Are you kidding me? If they just burst the door open? No. I disagree. 
The other thing that associates them with Christmas is that reindeer fucking love to eat them. They will devour these things and they go snorting through the snow for them. So there is like, oh, they wear shoes. They do wear shoes. <laughs> this older one has shoes on, but this one just kind of looks like it's his foot. And that, it looks like he's wearing one shoe. Well, the whole thing is crazy. Um, no one knows if the reindeer feel the psychedelic effect. Great question. Um, we haven't been able to ask them. <laughs> but, all right, so here's something that I don't totally believe. Like, there's a lot of places on the internet say that this is where, uh, like, the Christmas myth of Santa Claus comes from, um, that there are shamans in Siberian that traditionally wear red as part of the what symbolizes them being a shaman. And, you know, they work with the reindeer. Reindeers pull sleighs and things up there in the snow. And the shaman also take these mushrooms for their psychedelic effects. And so there's this whole thing about everyone is taking it and then like reindeer can fly and blah, blah, blah. My reaction to this is like, it doesn't always have to be about us, Europe, European white people. It doesn't have to always be about us. We don't have to take Siberian's tradition to be like, oh man, they wear red and have reindeer. That must be Santa. It's not all about us. So I don't believe this is an origin point for Santa Claus. I think we're just like laying claim to somebody else's culture as we are wont to do. That's my thoughts on it. Um, so there are a lot of connections, as I mentioned, both the literature to good luck, to horrifying uh, mushroom people knocking down your door, to reindeer, um, and lots, of, there's like plenty of urban legends and stuff, you know, go knock yourself out on Wikipedia, we only have 20 minutes together. So, but connecting that, another aspect of mushrooms that is deeply connected to folklore and stories and legends is the fairy ring. I love, this is an actual depiction of a fairy ring from a 17th century block print, but I love it's not really a fairy ring, it's just one of the fly agaric over there, and then these people dancing around, and then this creepy face in the tree. It's probably a green man, honestly, which is a topic for another time. So fairy rings are fascinating and honestly creepy as fuck. I think it's like the flash blur witchy lighting in this photo and the gray mushrooms, um, but I like it. It's very Halloween-y. Um, so <laughs> I'm completely losing it over the mushroom people feeding children and stealing their shoes. Uh, it's just they steal their shoes from the children they beat. It's just too, it's too good. It's too good. Uh, I feel like, like that's why he's horrified. That's why some of them have shoes. That's why they are bringing branches. <laughs> um, I feel like the MSG chat room is always the funniest chat room of any of the talks that I do or attend. So thank you for that. Not to put the pressure on you, just keep being you. So I learned something new about fairy rings today because I actually thought that fairy rings formed from puffball mushrooms, which I'm going to talk about at my story time, but puffball mushrooms kind of explode and let their spores out. And so I thought the fairy rings were formed when like a puffball went like, and then all the spores went everywhere and the things happen. But that's actually not true. So fairy rings happen, um, there's about 60 different species of mushrooms, some edible, many that aren't, that form fairy rings. And it starts with just one spore landing in the middle. And then the mycelium, which is like the little, I mean, some of you are going to talk more about this because they're not like mushroom roots. Mushrooms don't have roots, but it's like the little 
tentacle. You can call mushrooms. them mushroom roots. I'll I'll allow it. It's fine. Okay, okay. So the mycelium are like mushroom roots, and it is really what the mushroom is, and what we see above ground is essentially its sporing vessel. So a spore lands, grows the mycelium, and the mycelium grows in a circular pattern around that that um, center spore. And then the older mushrooms, they, they spore out and then they die. And then the mycelium continues to grow. And then a new one go, grows up and then dies and da-da-da-da-da. And so it just keeps growing in a circle underground from that original spore and then puts up mushrooms that die and da-da-da. And something else I didn't know that is so cool is that you can see fairy wings e even when they're not sporing. Um, depending on the species of mushroom, two different things happen. So as they're growing out, um, the mycelium will release chemicals to like the next circle essentially that at first will break down nitrogen in the soil making it really rich and ready for the mushrooms to spore there which you'll get something like you see on the right you get this particularly like lush patch of grass as the grass is like yeah nitrogen let's do it but then when the mushrooms the mycelium moves into that area and the mushrooms spore it sucks out all the nitrogen and then it kills all the vegetation so that's where you see something like this sort of bullseye on the other side of the screen here too um fairy rings can last for literally hundreds of years there is a fairy ring in belfour in northeastern france and it is about 200 feet in diameter how many miles is that how many feet in a mile, Soma? Less than a mile, right? 55, 20. 50, so 50, it's about half, it's almost half a mile yeah, wide. That's really big. Um, and it's believed to be over 700 years old. That's bananas. Now, of course, because Mushroom. of their like, oh wait, we'll get back to that. Because of their like creepy appearance, there is a lot of um, legends associated with this. Um, why can't some mushrooms make fairy rings is a good question. And I'll try to get back to some of your other questions. I'm not, um, I'll try to get back in the chat while Soma's talking later. Um, it's just the way their mycelium is growing. So as we're talking about the foraging, some of the ways to tell one mushroom from another is how they grow. Do they grow as a single mushroom? Do they grow as a clump? Do they grow in the soil on the, on the roots of living trees or do they grow on dead wood? So it has more to do with all the varying aspects that make a mushroom. So even though there's 60 different species of mushrooms that will form a fairy ring, what they have in common is that they will grow um, oh, and I should actually say there's two types. There is, this is called a tethered fairy ring. And it's a tethered, feathered fairy rings have trees in the center of them. Um, and they, they are growing out on the tree's roots. So they are sort of tethered to that tree. But then these are free fairy rings. And it just means that they're growing in the soil. They are a type of mushroom that is able to grow in the soil. Um, what they have in common is that they have to be sort of, um, so it has to be fairly rich and it has to be fairly flat and it has to have the same basic composition too for the conditions to be right to be a, to have a fairy ring which is why you see them like in people's lawns a lot because those are the exact type of conditions for a free forming fairy ring so i saw i love that both chloe and alexander were like there with the the foots the feet in a mile um intangible nerd points to you both so i just there, you know, there's so many attachments to fairy rings in so many cultures. In France, they're called Grand des Sorcières, which means witches' circles. And in German, they're called Hexenringe, which means uh, witches' rings in German. Um, and in, in Dutch superstitions, the fairy ring is where the devil keeps his milk churn, which 
I guess I should have looked in to more. I should have tested my Dutch friend and asked why the devil had a milk churn. I guess he likes butter, evil butter. I don't know. So I just took it as like, well, that's really weird. And I should have done more research. I'll get back to you on it as to why the devil has that milk churn. Um, but like for the most part, going in or near or destroying part of a fairy ring in like all European cultures is no good. Um, destroying a fairy ring can either bring bad luck, it can bring death. Um, so one of the traditions, so there's a Scottish rhyme that talks about the danger of um, destroying a fairy ring. And like, I tried to see if I could read it in a Scottish accent, but despite the fact that my grandmother was a Scottish immigrant and had an accent to the day she died, my accent kind of wanders all over the place when I try to read this. I think because it's written in dialect, um, I'll, give, I'll give it a shot for you. So this is traditional Scottish rhyme about fairy rings. He wa tears the fairies green, nay look again shall he, and he wa spears the fairies ring, betide him once and way. For weariless days and weary nights are his till his dean day. But he would gaze by the fairy ring, nay dooner pine shall see, and he what cranes the fairy ring, and easy death shall be. Did you get that? Don't touch it. You're going to die. That's basically what it says. Um, in most of England, it was believed that fairies were trying to lure you into the ring to dance with them and dance themselves into madness. Um, and fairies would actively try to lure you um, into, into the fairy ring. This is from, I believe, a Welsh story. No, excuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a Welsh story from the 19th century um, that is describing a mortal's encounter with a fairy ring. I cannot do a Welsh accent, don't even ask. He saw the Tylith Teg in appearance like tiny soldiers, those are the, the fairies, dancing in a ring. He set off for the scene of revelry and soon drew near the ring where in gay company of males and females, they were footing it to the music of the harp. Never had he seen such handsome people nor any so enchantingly cheerful. They beckoned him with laughing faces to join them as they leaned backwards, almost falling, whirling round and round with joined hands. Those who were dancing never swerved from the perfect circle, but some were clambering over the old cromlich, the others chasing each other with surprising swiftness and the greatest glee. All this was in silence, for the shepherd could not hear the harps, though he saw them. But now he drew nearer to the circle and finally ventured to put his foot in the magic ring. The instant he did this, his ears were charmed with strains of the most melodious music he ever heard. Um, and of course, like he danced forever until he died in there. That's the thing about fairies. We think of them as like being cute and good in America for some reason, but like European fairies are nasty. They want to lure you to your death. They want to steal your babies. Um, they're not nice. You have to keep them happy. And so I guess the last thing that I wanted to say, cause I'm, I am a little, I'm out of time here is, um, that, so the, the insult toadstool, I was kind of curious where that came from when you call someone a toadstool. And it's basically a toadstool is a name for um, an, an edible or poisonous mushroom, but also it kind of means like something ugly, which I don't really think mushrooms are. I think they're pretty, but I mean, I guess not all of them. Some of them are pretty horrifying looking, um, but it's used as an insult. And for in, in recently it's taken on a different meaning 
um, because in Stormy Daniels' um, tell-it-all memoir, she referred to Donald Trump's penis as a tiny toadstool penis. So I am putting that in your mind because you have to go vote. You have to vote. If Donald Trump is our president for four more years, I swear to God, I'm going to reference that man's toadstool penis every single MSG from now until he's out of office. So this is on you, for God's sake, get the ballots in, text your family. To, I'm driving people to the polls on election day. I'm at it because I don't want to keep thinking about his toadstool penis. And if he wasn't in the office in the first place, we never ever would. And that is the end of my talk about mushrooms. So you have to unmute yourself. Wow. No, I was just exhaling. I mean, I'm, I guess it would have it would have come through, but uh. I mean, I put the Paul Red in there just to cancel it out. I hope yeah. that that helps a little bit. Sure. Just some sexy Paul Rudd gifts. He wants you to vote. He does. He does. I mean, look at him. Look at him squatting in his <laughs> maroon underoos. <sighs> That's it, Soma. You want to talk about some things? Yeah, I just stole the uh, presentation Ooh, away from you. That's so right. I don't know. I, I mean, Sarah, confirm yeah. this for me. Uh, and other people who are using the, uh, uh, what's it called? Zoom. Zoom. Yeah, you can also confirm this to me. My name is, according to Zoom, Jonathan Soma. Right. Right. Yeah, correct. Now, I don't know who here was born sometime between like 1970 and like 2000, but literally every single human being that was born, male, female, America, Antarctica, literally everyone was named Jonathan. I never thought about that because, but that's like the same with Sarah. And like, no one ever calls me by my first name. They always call me Loman because there's too many Sarahs. Yeah. I mean, at least you're not Jennifer. But yeah, Sarah is Sarah is awful. It's terrible. <laughs> terrible. Um, but Jonathan, awful, terrible. I was in sixth grade and there were like five of us. Jonathan Soma, Jonathan Regenball, Jonathan Zabin, a couple other Jonathans lost the sands of time. And so we were like, fuck it. We're all last name people now. So ever since then, I have just been Soma. And it's like I'm a diva. It's like, I'm like, no, I only have one name and it's crazy. And everyone's like, ooh, where's that name from? And I'm like, sorry, sorry to disappoint you. Sorry to sound like an asshole. Uh, there are just too many Jonathans. So that's, that's me. That's who I am. Uh, and when I meet people and they say, what's your name? Because that's the first thing you say to a stranger when you meet them on the street. Uh, <laughs> I say, I'm Soma. And they say, oh, like, and then they say something related to Soma. So the two best ones are the music ones. The first one, there's a stroke song called Soma. Pretty good song. Uh, second one, there's a song on Siamese Dream, the Smashing Pumpkins album called Soma. Only like one person in my entire life has said like the Smashing Pumpkins song. So many people have said like the stroke song. Um, and I'm like, yes, just my parents named me after something that came out in like 2001. It's true. Uh, the other one that comes up a lot is uh, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Uh, and when this was published, uh, there is a drug. It's like a dystopian novel, like 1984 style. 
Uh, but everyone takes this drug called Soma that just, you know, kind of chills them out, makes them happy. Uh, they relax. They have, they have a good time. Um, they don't care about anything. So Soma is a thing. It's, an, it's a quote, uh, like ancient Vedic manuscripts from like India uh, they talk about something called soma, and it's like a drug or a plant, and it just, you know, kind of makes you have a good time. And so that's probably where Aldous Huxley got it from. Um, so once I met a house full of people, and they said, what's your name? And I said, hi, I'm soma. And they all said, oh, like the hallucinogenic mushroom. And I was like, okay, <laughs> that's me. Definitely. That's what my parents named me after. Um, and so there's this idea that this, you know, ancient Vedic thing called Soma, which is a drink and a god and a plant and all kinds of stuff. People roll up and they're like, oh, wow, this is some kind of like ancient history thing. We want to figure out what plant this is. And it's such a like a big thing. There's even a Wikipedia page about what the botanical identity of Soma is. And they go deep and deep and deep for all of these different people. They're, they're like all white people from like the 60s saying like, here's what it should be. Um, from the late 1960s onwards, several studies attempt to establish Soma as a psychotropic substance because why not? That's what you're going to do in the 60s. Um, so they just picked a bunch of like crazy mushrooms and like stimulant plants and stuff. And they're like, yeah, it's one of these fucked up guys here. And Sarah... I already talked about this guy uh, and it's available everywhere and it's the same mushroom that Sarah used and it's the exact same hilarious slide. Like the ironic children. part about this is that you texted me all week of like, are you going to talk about this? Are you going to talk about this? Are you going to talk about this? Like we actually do like a My Favorite Murder Style. We don't have a Steven, but like we check in to be like, are we going to, no, I'm like, no, no, no. Like, and then the one thing you didn't ask me about but you didn't pick out that same murderous uh, shoe stealing mushrooms card, did you? No, no, okay. that was all you. That was, I do have a Santa Claus though. Um, Cause as Sarah was talking about, people are like, oh, this is where Santa comes from. Like the shamans come out and they like pick the mushrooms and they give them the people and they're dressed up like Santa Claus. And it's like, that's probably not true, but fine. No. And then she also talked about reindeer. So reindeer eat these mushrooms. <clears throat> now, when you eat psychotropic substances that are from plants, oftentimes psychotropic substances uh, have negative effects on you or there's other stuff in the plant that's kind of toxic to you. And also, Sarah, what did you say about uh, solubility of... Uh, of that you can, you can, you cook it a couple times in water, like you boil it a couple times and the toxins, I, I said water soluble, it's not really what I meant, but sure, like- but you cook it, you process it. You process you can, it. You can have it and it's better, the toxins are gone, right? Right. Delightful. Now, what if, you know, it's very cold, maybe you're sick of lighting fires, you're sick of boiling water, you live in the Arctic because you really like cold stuff. What you can do instead is let the reindeer do the work for you and you feed the mushrooms to the reindeer, or you feed the mushrooms to even another person, some sad sap, uh, and then they process it through their body, and then they pee it out, and then you drink their urine, and then the urine has the psychotropic substances 
in it without all the bad stuff. Just the bad stuff being urine um, and nothing else. Well, but wait, no, okay. So I'm confused because when I heard about cooking it, you're uh, cooking it so that you can eat it normal, like with some pasta or some spetzel or something, not so you can get high. Oh, but this like, is so you can get high. So this yeah, is like- in this version, in my version of the story, the processing, like the bad things are, it is the toxins that are getting you high. In your yeah, version so of there the story, are also other tea. bad things in it. This is true for a lot of dis- different substances where if it's bad for you normally, if you make something else eat it or someone else eat it, like you draw straws and then hmm. you drink their pee and then like the real bad stuff is gone because it's busy like fucking up their kidneys and then the rest of the psychotropic stuff is just chilling in their urine and then you have a good time and then you're fucking high as shit and you're like, those reindeer are flying. And it's great. And where did all this information come from? Where did all these slides come from? Oh, from the U.S. Forest Service. <laughs> they have a webpage, um, part of the USDA, talking uh, about people tripping uh, as like the reason for the season for Christmas. I really don't buy it. I mean, especially because of all like the Christmas reading I've done, like really it came from German immigrants who do like this mushroom, but don't seem to have a history of like, dosing getting high with this mushroom they just eat it at christmas time oh and like i feel like we should mention that the mushroom is red and white which is like red and white and green are christmas colors um and all those traditions like came to america through you know we had a huge german immigration wave in the middle of the 19th century and then also queen victoria married a german and she had a christmas tree in the palace in buckingham palace and so like we really loved her and thought she was fashionable so like we started mimicking her but a lot of it too is just about like a bunch of like dutch romanticists um like um i don't know what like names aren't coming to me i hope i don't have dementia i think it's just because i don't talk to anybody because of covid um the guy who wrote um This is such a great talk, you guys. It's going really well. I, Sarah, did you, you know, I know that uh, certain, certain mushrooms, these are, these are shrooms right here. I have uh, not eaten any mushrooms with any is that variety you today. Took a little bit, took a little bit beforehand. What's the story that's, okay, the guy who wrote The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, what's his name? Someone's probably uh, saying it in the chat. Uh, you don't know, Soma? It's not Hawthorne, right? <laughs> no, he also wrote the story about the guy who fell asleep for a century and then woke up. Washington, Washington Irving. Irving. Thank oh, you. Wow. Did you all Google that or did you just know? People know. It's common. I couldn't think of it because right. he's like a New Yorker dude. Like he wrote stories about the New Amsterdam area. Like C.P. Hollow is like very like Dutch-y. Um, he is one of the people that created Christmas. Um, again, Battle for Christmas, fascinating book. Created American Christmas. Um, and I don't think it has, not to like discredit the people in Siberia and all the cool things they're doing. I just think that we don't need to take everybody's culture. Well, speaking of hallucinogenic substances, I'm going to talk about something that I haven't talked about for like a year and a half, which is when I worked at Subway when I was a teenager, which used to come up in every single MSG. Did everybody text you that Irish uh, court ruling that Subway bread isn't bread, it's cake? Look, it's fine. I mean, like, is a burrito sandwich? Courts can say whatever they want. Courts can say what. Yeah, sandwich artist, I had this shirt. It was great. Um, So while I worked at Subway, I had a coworker who was, like, a crazy drug addict, and he just did all the drugs. And he was like, hey, you should read this book by Carlos Castaneda, 
called The Teachings of Don Juan. And it was all about people taking peyote, which is not a mushroom. So it's a cactus, but like, it's fine. It's topical because it's about hallucinogenic substances. And it's so it's story like time. A, you can say whatever you want. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's like a series of books. Um, it was published as Anthropology, where there's this guy, uh, Carlos Castanon, and he went out and he's in like, you know, New Mexico or something, Mexico. He meets a guy named Don Juan, uh, who's like a shaman. And he teaches him like tribal ways of using peyote to reach another plane and to like teach things and do all, all kinds of great stuff. And I fucking love this book. I love the other book. It was great. And I was like, this is amazing. It's also apparently, Oh yeah. Jimson weed all. Yeah. is also all a lie. Like he just wrote a book and he just made a bunch of shit up despite the fact that it was published as anthropology. So it was not real, but it was a great book and it made me like incredibly obsessed with, uh, like hallucinogenic substances, which I've never done any hallucinogenic substances, but it made me obsessed with them. So the guy that introduced me to these books also worked at Subway. Now I worked at Subway in the olden days um, where we would cut the center out of the bread and pull it out instead of cutting it like a loser, cutting it in half. Um, and so, I mean, your mom can give you whatever. It's fine. It's fine. We're, we're not here to judge. We're just here to celebrate. So I was working with Adam, who's the guy who loved drugs, and some woman came in, and it was at, by closing time, and Adam goes to like hand her her change, and he has, you know, he's full of tremors all the time because he's like a drugs guy, and then this woman looks at him, is just like, you, you need Jesus, like, the, here's a Bible, like everything will be great, and you know, we were very like militant atheist people. So we knew a bunch of Bible stuff and she's like talking to him and he's arguing back and forth and like, it's, it's going. And then at the end, she's like, she's goes to leave and she's like, what's your name? And he's like, Oh, my name is Adam. And she's like, Ooh, Adam, like the first man, like the, the beginning of the end, et cetera, et cetera. And then she turns to me and I was really not involved in this at all. And she's like, what's your name? And I was like, I fucking got you now. And I'm like, Soma? No. Along with the other things I told you, Soma is Greek for body. And she apparently knew this. And her response was like, ooh, Greek for body, the flesh, sin, incarnate. And I was like, fuck, like, you really got me. You really got me. Congratulations, lady. Good, good work. Good work. So don't ever try to argue with a woman who comes into Subway at closing time to talk to you about religion because she knows way more than you expect. She knows everything, really. Well, there you have it. Yeah, there you have it. Sin incarnate. Who knew? All right, I'm going to steal your screen now. Do it. Uh, And it's like, do you want to make him stop sharing? You're like, yeah. Yeah. Fuck him. Um, Okay. So, but I didn't, I didn't do it super smooth. I should have presented it first in the background. All right. So here's what I'm going to tell you about. I'm going to tell you about how to forage for mushrooms safely. I'm just going to get you started um, because I just started doing this a few years ago too. And although I was foraging for other stuff, I was like nervous getting mushrooms. Um, I, I think the number one thing to know is that there are not a lot of mushrooms that kill you. Like I mentioned earlier, there are some that are poisonous and that they can make you sick but it is fairly rare to find a mushroom that kills you. So like 
the basics to learning how to forage mushrooms is that you don't need to know all the mushrooms. In fact, there are so many mushrooms on the world that no one person knows all the mushrooms. New ones are being discovered all the time. And so I think that that's part of the hesitation for people getting into mushroom foraging. They feel like they need to know them all so they don't pick the wrong one and poison themselves. Don't. There are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of mushrooms. What you need to know are the ones that are delicious and the ones that will kill you. And that's it. And you don't even need to totally know the ones that will kill you. You just need to know the ones that are delicious and not pick other ones and know if there's anything that look close to those. So my first, so that's piece of advice number one. Don't try to know all the mushrooms, just know the delicious ones and the ones that can kill you. Advice number two is to get yourself the Seek by iNaturalist app. It is such a cool app. You take it, it has, it's augmented reality now. So it's on your phone, you go out into the environment, you can scan, it'll tell you what things are, but it works best if you focus on something and then take a photo and then it will identify it if it can and then take you to a description about it. Again, it's not gonna know every single mushroom because there are too many mushrooms, but it will know the big ones. And this app is super, super cautious. Like it is really rare. It tells me that something is edible. This is not just for mushrooms. This is for, I mean, I don't really use it for animals. But I use it for a lot of plants. And I often use it to confirm something that I think I already know. Like I see a plant, I recognize it as an edible plant, but I use it to double check that it is what I think it is. And I love it because I have learned a lot of new plants. Edible, none. I've just learned the names of flowers and trees. Um, because I've been able to identify it and then remember it. And it just feels like learning a new language about the environment around me. I absolutely love it. It's also great when you move to a new place and are kind of unfamiliar with whatever plants and trees might be around you. So this app is so cautious that if I snap a picture of a mushroom, like I did with the stump puffball here, and it tells me within its description that this is a, a choice edible mushroom, like that has to be a super, super safe, super delicious mushroom because Seek does not tell you to eat things. So like if it's telling you to eat something, it's not only safe, but it's probably going to be delicious. So download this app. It's free. It's really fun. Um, and then I would recommend getting a mushroom guide as well. I recommend this book specifically. Gary Linkoff um, is a New Yorker. He used to lead walks for the New York Mycology Society. Sadly, he recently passed away within the last year or two. Um, but he was like the mushroom guy. He, if there's anyone who maybe knew every mushroom, it might be him. And what I like about his book, which shoot, I left on the couch. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Mm -mm 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 -mm. Is that it's not very thick. So like I, when you're starting out, don't get one of those like gigundous mushroom guides because that is just going to make you continue to feel overwhelmed. What Linkoff does in his book is it's really good for beginners because it's teaching you about foraging, but it focuses on exactly what I told you you need to focus on. The ones that are delicious and the ones that are gonna kill you. So like he goes through the categories of mushrooms, which I think someone's gonna talk about a little bit. He talks about the choice edible ones, he talks about the lookalike, and then there's a separate chapter for the ones that are considered poisonous. So this is a really good starting book if you're thinking about mushroom foraging. But what I'm gonna do for you now is I'm gonna show you, I guess four, I think, maybe five, we'll see what happens. Um, basic mushrooms that I myself have foraged and are really, really tasty and also pretty easy to spot. Um, if you're a person who likes to eat things and eat fancy things, you've probably already seen morals or morels, I've heard them called. Um, they sort of look honeycombed is how they're described. Um, they, yeah. So they're a spring mushroom. You can find them 
almost all over the country, east to west, all the way to California. There are different species of morals. Um, some of them, I mean, and they're a little bit mysterious. They grow on the roots of trees. It's difficult to figure out what trees. They also like soil that is really alkaline. So they tend to pop up a lot in orchards, like olive orchards and apple orchards, because that salt, um, that salt, that soil has lime mixed into it to make it really alkaline. So they'll pop up there. They will also pop up, certain species pop up after forest fires because the soil becomes really alkaline after all the ash goes into the soil. And um, out in the Midwest and East, where I know at least some of you are, they tend to grow on the roots of tulip trees out here as well. This is one of the ones, like someone was talking about a little bit earlier that someone wanted to get into mushroom hunting. And so they were like, hey, where are your spots? And the other person's like, wouldn't you like to know? I kind of hate mushroom snobbery and like secret spots, but like with morals, that's the, the, the mushroom that you will find that kind of secretism because I've actually never forged uh, a moral myself because I don't have the spots. I haven't been doing it long enough. My friend just discovered us like two this year already has a spot, but like once you find where they grow, they will pop up in that spot spring after spring after spring. And so that's why people keep them secret because not only are they delicious, but you can make a lot of money by selling them if you're into that business. Um, and some people in Europe, there are areas where they will light fires with the hope of having like a good moral harvest in the springtime. Um, there is a, a family of mushrooms known as false morals. And uh, that's what they look like on the left versus that an actual gross. It looks super gross. It's really like brainy looking. And the other things that make it really distinctive, so it's brainy looking versus honeycombed. Um, they are reddish. And although morals and morels come in a variety of colors from yellow to black, they will never be reddish. And the other easy way to tell them apart is that when you cut a moral in half, it's hollow. And when you cut one of the false morals in half, it's solid or is, um, what is the word I want? Chambered inside. Uh, but well, morals are, totally, totally hollow. Okay. So easy. So far, so good. Another super easy. So like the, all of these choice edible mushrooms are also like very visually remarkable. Chanterelles is another one you've probably heard of. So chanterelles are pretty small, at least here in like the Midwest and East, they get to about that big. I think in California, they can get a little bit bigger. That's like four inches. And like out here, a big one is maybe like three inches. Um, there's also another variety called red chanterelles that are a little bit more of like a pumpkin orange too. And those are even smaller. Those might be like an inch or two tall. They don't exactly have gills. They kind of have these like folds underneath. Uh, they grow along the roots of trees. So once you find one in the ground, you kind of like look out around a tree. They won't grow in a fairy ring, they'll grow in lines along the roots of the trees. And they tend to grow like scattered on the forest floor, but they'll grow individually. And that's important because the thing that looks the closest to the chanterelles, again, a choice edible, considered one of the most delicious mushrooms. These are a summer mushroom. They're gonna grow like June, July, maybe early August, um, is a jack-o'-lantern mushroom. This is the closest thing, probably because the color is similar, but these are actually quite different. Um, they get quite a bit bigger. The taller mushrooms in a jack-o'-lantern will be six or seven inches tall. Um, and they also tend to grow in clumps. So you will never see a chanterelle that, that grows in a clump. They always grow in scattered individual ones and they're just a lot bigger and the caps look different. However, if you do see these and you will see these growing along roots often like in lawns as well, they're hella cool because they are a mushroom that glows in the dark. 
So for whatever reason, nobody knows, they give off, they have bioluminescence. So I did find some of these, pluck them, was at first disappointed they weren't chanterelles because I was still learning how to forage. My buddy was like, no, 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 they're really, really cool. So like I put them in a box and my mom and I went to her basement at night and like put towels over our head and they did grow, glow with this like faint blue glow. So even mushrooms you can't eat are still pretty fucking cool. I see the chat. I see there's probably questions. I'll, I'll try to get up in there once I'm done talking. Um, the very first mushroom that I correctly identified with the help of seek and then harvested, cooked, prepared is a chicken mushroom. And chicken mushrooms are so obvious. They are bright orange and yellow. They sort of grow like feathers. Um, they will be growing on rotting wood specifically, not on the ground. And you can spot them from miles away. Some mushrooms, like the fly agaric mushroom, is sort of telling you it's poisonous, but like other mushrooms are telling you they're delicious because harvesting mushrooms doesn't hurt them. It actually helps to spread the, the spores. And when mushroom harvesters go out to harvest, they usually put mushrooms in a basket, an open weave basket. So as they're walking, they're continuing to spread spores around. So there's no, like, you're not harming these in any way. And in this case, chickens like, come and get me so-called chicken because this baby tastes like chicken. Um, it is a polypore mushroom. Polypores usually grow on trees, dead or alive. And as opposed to having gills underneath, they have this like intricate pattern of tiny holes kind of. And there's very, very few polypore mushrooms that you can eat. And again, there's none of them that have the same coloring as the chicken mushroom. Now there is kind of, chicken mushrooms aren't considered poisonous. However, polypores are very, I never know if it's chitin or chitin. It's chitin, isn't it? Sama, you don't know? Chitin? So they're very chitinous. And chitin is the material that mushrooms are made out of. Maybe someone's going to talk about this a little bit more. Nope. Nope. Look it up on Google. It's, a, it's, their, it's what their cells are made out of, essentially. Um, and we, as human beings, don't have the best time digesting it. So when I cooked these and ate these with my friend, I would, I didn't have diarrhea, but I had what I would describe as an extremely urgent poop. And the moment that it hit me and it was like, oh, I was actually waiting in line for a bus in Burlington, Vermont that was going to take me to Boston. And I was luckily early for the bus and I was like, I can't get on this bus. I can't blow up that bus bathroom. So I did the only thing I knew to do is I went to the Ben and Jerry's flagship store because I knew that it was open to the public and it would look busy enough that no one would notice me if I just went to the back, blew up the bathroom and left, which is exactly what I did. So be warned if you're harvesting and eating chicken mushrooms. And I believe the last one we're going to talk about is a giant puffball, which again is really, really obvious. It looks like this motherfucker. It looks like a giant ball of mozzarella uh, in the forest or in lawns. Um, it's recommended that you only eat ones that are about the size of soccer balls, but they should also be absolutely pure white when you cut them open. Um, the older they get, they'll start to discolor as they're releasing spores, but this is also how you tell it apart from any lookalikes. Yeah, I like huge. this picture because it's like they're just going to eat it like it's ice cream, but you <laughs> need a fork for it. It looks like, like fresh dig, mozzarella. Just dig, just dig in. I mean, I think they put the fork there for scale, but it does look Bananas like slices of fresh mozzarella. Now, the recipe that was recommended in the Mushroom Hunter, and I did find some of these recently. I found the small puff balls, which were really amazing. They tasted like bacon, the sun puff balls. Um, but I've not found one of these fresh yet. 
And they recommend dredging it in like egg and panko and then frying both sides and you eat it like a, you know, like a sandwich or a little mushroom steak or something. Um, and these are also super easy to tell the non-edible ones. There are many species of puffballs, but the giant puffball is the edible one. Um, when you cut it in, in half, you should only eat what is pure white inside. And then the look-alike non-edible puffballs that are poisonous, they look like um, death and disease inside. So if you cut something open and it looks like that, you should not be eating it. But also they look pretty significantly different on the outside. They should be a, like a pure white giant ball of fresh mozzarella looking. And uh, happy hunting. Those are my basics. Those are some mushrooms that you really can't get wrong. They're really, really delicious. And again, I recommend both Seek and uh, the Complete Mushroom Hunter as resources to help you along. Did oh, well you steal up. those emoji from my email? Emojis? Oh, I did emoji. see those emojis from your email. Only, only between you and me would I mistake the word emoji for koji. Yeah. Um, if anyone or chitin, okay, you've heard it pronounced as opposed to chitin. It's chitin. Okay. Yeah. That's one of those words that I read um, and then don't know. So I look at it every please... day. I have like a live, laugh, chitin, you know. So <laughs> live, laugh, like live, live laugh, laugh, love. Chitin. Come on, please help. Um, yeah. Um. So. I am seeing if there's, so the Mushroom Hunter, the Complete Mushroom Hunter is the book. I also put it up on my, and MSG's Facebook page. Um, and the author is Gary Linkoff. Oops, I just texted it to Alex privately. Sorry. So everybody, the Complete Wow, you're sending private, did you know, I hope everyone knows that the hosts can read all of your private messages. They're I always not have sending to tell private messages students. to each other. I have to say, if you shit talk me, I'm just going to know. I'm just going to read it. Yeah, for anyone that ends up requesting the recorded recording of this, I forgot that it was recording while Sam and I were like pre-show meeting, but we didn't trash talk or say anything interesting. I just had to pee. It's and, just a Zoom thing, yeah. Yeah, and my brother's having a baby. That's exciting, though. There, there's too many questions. If you have you any burning questions that I missed, type them again. Harsh. It seems like you're just going to read something that breaks your heart a little bit. Me in the chat? Oh, I hope no, not. No, I was if just you read your students' DMs. Um, all right. Well, I'm just going to mute myself for a while so that I, your, my clicking doesn't bother you. And now you're going to talk about mushrooms, right? I love your clicking. I'm going to talk about mushrooms. So, you know, if, if uh, you listen to all Sarah's stuff and you were just like, it's too much work. I don't care. I don't know. Uh, it's fine because I'm just going to tell you how to grow mushrooms. So on the internet, the internet, amazing resource. I'm sure we've all used it. Um, when you are researching growing mushrooms on the internet, there's an infinite number of resources, but it's like 50-50 whether people are talking about gourmet edible mushrooms or shrooms. And I think that even the 50% that are talking about gourmet edible mushrooms, most of the time they're also still just talking about shrooms, but having plausible deniability that they're talking about something that is not legal. So usually you hear people talking about cubes, which is just the cute name um, uh, for shrooms. So where they're all grown the same. So you can, you know, take everything that I give you and then leave and then go, you know, get some spores and make some shrooms. But mostly we're talking about shiitake and oysters and all the rest of that. So, nope, get out of the chat. Come on. There we go. Okay. So in order to know 
how to grow mushrooms. We have to know what mushrooms are. And so Sarah foreshadowed this a little bit. Um, like she said, oh, mushroom roots are not roots. And like, yeah, because even though we think that they're a vegetable, uh, they're not, they're not a vegetable. Um, they're, they're their own thing. They're a fungus and they're very different from what we think of as a plant. And so when we look at a mushroom, when we think of a mushroom, what we're actually looking at is the fruiting body of a fungus. Uh, and so imagine if every time you saw like an apple, it was just like poking out of the ground and then the apple tree was just like hiding underground. That's pretty much what you're dealing with when it comes to mushrooms. Um, mycelium is the, the root structure. It basically looks like roots, but it's also just like the body of the mushroom. So imagine that it's really just the tree, it's the roots, it's all the stuff that's not the flower, that's not the fruit. So what we pick, what we eat, is the fruit of the mushroom tree, more or less. Um, so the mycelium is really the important part. Uh, it's like root-like fibers that just grow everywhere. They grow as a net, they grow as a mass. Uh, they just grow places and then they find things to digest just like any other plant or animal does. Uh, and then they, they digest things and get, uh, get big and healthy and get fancy. So the stuff that they will digest is different depending upon the kind of fungus that it is. Now I will say that uh, it also is specific to which specific mushroom you're talking about um, because some of them prefer lignin and some of them prefer cellulose and blah, blah, blah. But the three general categories uh, are saprophytic, which eats dead stuff. So dead trees, logs, dead root systems, stuff like that. Um, so, you know, oh, this goes in the wrong order, it's fine. Next up, we have parasitic. So those <clears throat> eat living stuff like trees that are still alive. So if you see something growing out of a tree uh, and it is eating the living tree instead of eating like a dead log or <clears throat> a dead part of a tree, that's parasitic. Uh, and then there's mycorrhizal. <clears throat> uh, and that is myco like mushroom and rhizal like root. Uh, and those have a symbiotic relationship with plants in that uh, they kind of live with the roots, we'll talk more about it, uh, and kind of help the plant out and the plant helps it out. So saprophytic, uh, oyster, shiitake, easy ones. Um, honey fungus is mostly parasitic. And then truffle uh, and moral are mycorrhizal. Now, based on which category this is in, it really, really changes whether you can grow it or you know how you would grow it. Now, Mycorrhizal is the real interesting ones because they have a symbiotic relationship with plants. Uh, and it kind of looks like this, <clears throat> where what the plants want to do is they send out roots and they try to like pick up nutrients and stuff from the soil. But plants can't like really eat the soil. Uh, whereas what the fungus will do is it will actually grow around the roots like a sheath. And it just grows with the root of the plant as the plant grows. And then it sends out extra, you know, those fibers, uh, the mycelium sends out extra fibers that do digest random ass things that are sitting in, uh, in the forest soil. So it's kind of like bonus roots. So you have your normal root of the plant and then the fungus is like, you know what, man, if we work together, you can give me a little bit of carbohydrates, like 10, 20% of your, uh, your sugar, and then I'll go out and get you all these other fun nutrients. And so by working together, 
let's say the, the plants can get up to like 700, 800% of what they normally would in terms of nutrients just by virtue of working symbiotically with the fungus. And they call it like the fungus internet or the wood wide web. And it's the ability of all of these different funguses will intersect with one another. And then they'll be like, oh, hey, I'm a fungus, you're a fungus. We're probably just clones of the same fungus. Let's be friends. And so they start to send stuff back and forth. And so you might have one plant over here that's growing in the shade. And as a result of being in the shade, it doesn't get to photosynthesize very much. It doesn't have as much carbon as it was like. Then you have a plant over here that has so much sun, so much sun, it's photosynthesizing like crazy, has a ton of extra carbon. <clears throat> and what can happen is it can actually send carbon from the plant that has a lot of it over to the plant that doesn't have a lot of it using the fungus internet uh, through the mycelium. And it can send things like nitrogen, carbon, water, pretty much anything. And there's, there's a lot of debate about <clears throat> how much is actually sent back and forth. Like obviously there are people who are like, it's nature working together and solving all the problems and doing everything perfectly. And other people who are just like, it's never happened in the world and it's only happened in the lab and it's all theory. But I mean, it's real. Uh, and around 90% of plants on land actually have a symbiotic relationship with fungus. Um, whether it's like tiny, 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 tiny microfunguses uh, or like big fungus that, you know, absorb the roots and do lots of magic. And if you want to talk about, you know, big fungus, like this right here, that person, if we imagine this is to scale, that's a lot of fungus down there, right? Like mycelium is the body of the mushroom. Um, so how big, how big is that really? How big does it really get? Yes, lobster mushrooms are parasitic. It's hilarious because they're not, it's much like they're not a mushroom. They're just a thing that grows on another mushroom um, and then turns them delicious when they weren't before. So that's from the chat. Uh, so in terms of mushrooms, how big do mushrooms get? How exciting can they be? Um, there's a honey fungus in Oregon that is 2.4 miles across. Uh, originally, the largest one was in Michigan, and then they found this one, I think, a year later. Sorry, Michigan. It's possibly the largest living organism on Earth. It's somewhere between 2,000 and like 8,500 years old. Uh, it's a parasitic fungus, so it's kind of bad uh, in that it will kill trees. Most parasitic funguses kind of want to live with the tree, like they damage the tree, but they're like, I want to keep you alive so I can live. Um, but this fungus, honey fungus in general, uh, is parasitic, but it can also eat dead stuff too. So it's like, oh, I killed you. I don't care. It's fine. No big deal. So it's, it can do whatever it wants though, because it's like, you know, thousands and thousands of year, years old. So I can't say anything bad about it. Um, it's very, very big. It's, very, very cool, good work. Um, you mostly don't see, like the whole 2.4 miles is not just piles of mushroom all over the ground, right? What it is, is it mostly just lives underground and then it's just those fruiting bodies. In the same way that an apple tree isn't literally just 100% apples coming out of every single surface, it's mostly just a tree and then there's some spots that have apples. So how does it get to be so big? How is it 2.4 miles across? That seems like a lot. Uh, so uh, a mushroom can reproduce two different ways, mostly. Um, one is it can send spores away from its body, and then those spores can take root and start to grow. Uh, the other way is cloning, where let's say you take part of the mushroom or part of the mushroom falls off, 
And then just like, you know, let's say a succulent, like it just kind of grows on its own because it's just, it's the same collection of cells uh, and it can do things like that unlike human beings. So the idea would be uh, you have a bunch of little bits of mushroom where like I sent a bunch of spores over here, some of my body fell off over here and it started to grow. And when the mycelium from those different ones come together, they say, oh, hey, we're actually genetically identical or close enough because you're a clone of me, you're my child, whatever. And then they become a super organism and that they just kind of come together and just work together and they're just one organism. So it's kind of like if you move to New York and you're like, oh, wow, it's pretty dense here. Let's all just become one person. And everyone who moved to New York just got absorbed into being one gigantic human being that could then do whatever they wanted to the electoral college. And you just, you get absorbed, it's how it works. Um, so what we wanna do is not learn more facts, we just wanna grow some shit, right? Like Sarah terrified you and you're like, I wanna be lazy and I'm like, great, it's fine. So what we wanna do is we wanna grow some mushrooms. <clears throat> and as I've said hundreds of thousands of times, um, the mushroom part of the mushroom is the fruit of the tree. The rest of the tree, is the mycelium. Uh, and so what we need to do is we need to get that mycelium, which can then grow mushrooms for us. So you can just go on Amazon and buy, you know, build a mushroom from a bag. Uh, and you'll get like a bag of stuff or a box of stuff. And it's really just, it's just mycelium. And what you do is don't buy that brand. Sorry, it was just the first result. You buy it and then you cut it open, you get it wet. Um, and then it will grow mushrooms. And that's, that's pretty much all that happens because it is, uh, it's just a collection of mycelium there. It's growing on usually something like uh, hardwood sawdust uh, or chips or straw or something like that. And mushrooms just shoot out. Uh, what happens is the mycelium gets hydrated. Mushrooms are like 92% water, just like literally everything else in the world. Uh, the mycelium gets hydrated and it detects oxygen. And when mycelium detects oxygen, because you've cut this open or opened up the box or whatever, it's like, hey, it's time to make mushrooms. I'm gonna make some mushrooms and it's going to grow those mushrooms for you. So when you see things about how to grow mushrooms and it's like a bucket and there's a bunch of shit shooting out of the side, you can trust that it's real. All that's happening here is inside of the bucket, there is mycelium. There's straw or there's sawdust or their wood chips, some sort of substrate that the mycelium has grown onto. Because unlike a tree or something, it can't just grow up into the air, it has to grow on stuff, kind of like mold. Um, <clears throat> and so then you like drill a hole in it and then those holes are like, oh, oxygen, oxygen comes in through this hole. So let me just shoot out a bunch of mushrooms, a bunch of fruiting bodies through those holes and then you just cut them off and then you eat them and it's great. But you're like, I'm not a loser. I'm not going to just buy this thing from Amazon that clearly doesn't work. It's awful. Or you do buy the thing from Amazon, but you, you, know, you, you don't want to look like a loser. You don't want to look like you just cut a hole in this thing and put some water in it. Um, so you use something called a shotgun fruiting chamber. So as we just talked about, there are two things that mycelium needs in order to grow the fruiting body of a mushroom. It needs water or moisture. Uh, and it needs oxygen. The oxygen tells it, hey, it's time to grow, and the moisture allows it to have something to grow with. And so what you do is you just take a bin and you cut a bunch of holes in it with a drill, and then you put uh, you know, perlite, vermiculite, 
anything like that on the bottom that's been soaked in water. So it'll create a very moist environment. And then you just throw the like block of, uh, of you know, whatever you got from Amazon. You just throw the block in there and everywhere it'll just start shooting out mushrooms. Uh, you can put a bunch of different, different vats in there and it'll grow. It's, it's a very, very easy way to uh, grow mushrooms at, in more quantity than dealing with um, the the bag or the box from Amazon. Now, are those psychedelic mushrooms? They probably are because it's a picture from the internet. I just assume yeah. literally everything is. Not that I would know what those look like or how you grow them. Prison. I'm not growing any. So, what you do is you just cut it off. You just cut off the mushroom. You don't pull it off because that damages the. Uh, uh, the the root structure of it. Um, you cut it off and then it just grows more mushrooms. Some of them are a little more complicated, like shiitake, for example. You have to let it rest for a week. You have to cold shock it. You have to soak it again. Like it's a, it's a little bit of a process, but you know it'll just keep producing more and more fruiting bodies, more mushrooms, just just forever, you know, until it stops. Um, so let's say even fancier than this. We're abandoning Amazon. We want to DIY it. Um, you want to make that big block of mycelium yourself. Normally, the way you do that is you need a substrate first for your mycelium to grow on. Uh, what you're probably going to do is make something called a grain spawn, which is where you inoculate a mason jar full of grain. So like rye, wheat berries, pretty much anything. Um, and then the mycelium will grow through it, and it'll kind of look like tempeh, more or less. Um, you can just mix it all together and have it work though. Uh, has anyone here ever done home brewing? I've done some home brewing. What's the most important part of home brewing? Yeast. Uh, what's the most important process? Yes, thank you, sterilization, mm -hmm. most important thing. Imagine all of the sterilization that goes into home brew, but multiply it by a million, and then you get growing mushrooms. Because if you're trying to grow mushrooms, you have a nutrient-rich substrate, such as sawdust, wood chips, um, some sort of grain. You have a lot of moisture, and then you have uh, darkness. And it's like, what is better for bacteria or mold to grow than that? So you really have to make sure there's nothing else in there, and then you put, you inoculate it with your culture of uh, mushrooms and then you're like please grow faster than bacteria and mold do so you soak your grains overnight um, you put them into mason jars and then you put them in a pressure cooker uh, you can kind of use an instant pot but an instant pot has a lower psi than a normal stovetop pressure cooker so you have to do it for much longer um, but you basically just you sterilize them like you're canning and then you have like a, a magic uh, use high temperature sealant on the top of it and then you inject liquid culture into the sterile grains. And that liquid culture you put in like one cc, so you know this, what's 12 mils, uh, that'll make a bunch of mason jars. Um, and then you take those mason jars, you let them sit around for let's say two weeks, three weeks, and then they look like this. And that is just the mycelium growing in all of this, uh, all this grain. Now there's two different things you can do with this. Not, I mean, there are a million things you can do with this. In theory, you could just like poke holes in this glass jar. Probably not, no. What you're gonna do is you're gonna take this as like a starter 
and then put it in straw or put it in sawdust or put it in something else. And because there's so much mycelium there, because the mushroom is already so powerful, you don't have to worry about contamination. So if you're growing oyster mushrooms and you have a backyard, for example, you can just put down some cardboard, put down some straw, and then just like sprinkle this on top of it and the mushrooms will pop right out. Not immediately, but close enough, close enough. Um, and so just because it's so concentrated, you don't have to worry about bad stuff happening. But you're like, I'm more of a badass than this. Um, I wanna know how to make that original liquid culture that we injected in. And I'm like, okay, great. Two ways to make your own culture. Number one, a spore print. If you Google this, it's a lot of people on Etsy who just like dip a mushroom in paint and then put it on a piece of paper. Can I just, can I just say too, this is also something that like serious mushroomers do to, um, like, am I serious mushrooms? People who are just want to learn about all the mushrooms or, um, want to eat some of the like, uh, less obvious edible mushrooms. Like they, you can confirm a lot of identities by spore print. I also forgot to mention too, spore prints, one way you could do it sight, obviously, but also a lot of these mushrooms have really specific smells like, uh, chant uh, chanterelles tend to smell like apricots. So there's various ways you can identify, including spore prints. Every time I like go to the New York Mycology Society and I'm like, you know what the mushroom this is? They're always like, oh, we'll do a spore print. And then I never do because I'm just like lazy or not as totally invested, I guess. Awful. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you wanna make more, like you get a mushroom from the woods and you're like, this mushroom is great. I love this mushroom. I wanna make more of it. So what you do is you just set it down on like some glass or a piece of paper and literally by virtue of laying there for like 12 hours, um, it'll spit out all of its spores and you'll just have a collection of spores and it's cool. And then you just like do whatever you're going to do with those in order to inoculate a bunch of grain or sawdust or whatever. Uh, the easier way to do this um, is cloning a mushroom. So as I said before, uh, mushrooms are clonal. Uh, you can reproduce them. What you normally do is you just cut some of it off from the middle uh, and then you put it in a Petri dish and then it just grows more of a mushroom. I really, really, really recommend, there's a bunch of like weird websites that, oh, it seems easier. I haven't even gotten to the worst part. So if you want to do this, there are a bunch of weird psychedelic websites and a bunch of like really slow talking people on YouTube, but Fresh Cat Mushrooms is a YouTube channel on a website and everything they do is perfect. I have a really short attention span and all of their videos are like five minutes long and get everything done real fast. So if you wanna grow mushrooms, check out Fresh Cap. They didn't pay me to say this, uh, but they saved me a lot of time by me just watching those videos instead of reading a ton of stuff. Um, so the reason why, like what makes this awful is if you look at what's happening here. Um, so uh, probably what you do is you are terrified of mushroom. Like you've got a mushroom from the woods, you got a mushroom from the store, it's filthy. Even if you wash it off, it's still filthy. It's covered in bacteria, it's covered in mold, it's covered in other funguses, it's covered in all kinds of stuff that will contaminate your Petri dish. So what you'll probably do is dip it into a dilute bleach solution in order to clean the outside of it. Then you're going to tear it open wearing gloves and you're gonna cut out some of the middle of it because the middle of it won't have the bad stuff on it, right? It's like ground beef uh, where ground beef is bad, but just buying a hunk of beef is not bad. And then you're going to take that bit and then put it in like an agar nutrient bath and it will grow. 
But if you look at this, you're like, there's a weird grate. I mean, you clearly didn't think this, but now you can think there's a weird grate behind this Petri dish right here. And so what this weird grate is, uh, it's called a laminar flow hood. And what it does is basically a fan that is blowing through a filter. And so when you are putting anything into that Petri dish, the air from downstream from like where you are with your filthy mushroom and your filthy hands and your filthy breath uh, is not going to go into your Petri dish. Only filtered air is going to go into the Petri dish because it's being blown through this hood. Um, and it's like, it's the thing that's a pain in the ass if you're trying to do real fancy mushroom stuff. But just buy cultures from the internet, liquid cultures, you'll be fine. You don't have to do this. You don't have to make your own Petri dishes, whatever. But here's the thing. Okay, so uh, someone said, someone said, someone said, whatever Sarah said is, seems easier. That happened at one point. And here's the thing. Not only is whatever Sarah said easier sometimes, but additionally, this doesn't work for all mushrooms. This is the most important thing. It doesn't work for all mushrooms, right? It really only works for saprophytic mushrooms, the mushrooms that grow on dead stuff. Because like, what is a bunch of sawdust? What is wood chips? What is, you can grow oyster mushrooms on cardboard. So if you have a bunch of like cardboard egg cartons or something, you can just grow oyster mushrooms on it. Cause why not? It'll eat anything, anything that's uh, based on plants. But it's because those things are like dead trees, but just dead trees in different formats, right? Like a cardboard is a dead tree in one format. Sawdust is a dead tree in another format. Um, but parasitic mushrooms aren't going to grow on dead stuff. Uh, and mycorrhizal mushrooms aren't going to grow on dead stuff because they both need living organisms. They need to either destroy the plant or work with the plant. Uh, and it turns out that pretty much all of the mushrooms, does how, what the mushroom grows on affect how it tastes? I don't know the answer to that question. It's a good question. Um, it's a good question. That's, that's all I can say. That's all I can say. Um, so pretty much all the good fancy mushrooms uh, are mycorrhizal and they all need to grow with the root of a plant. And so like when you're digging at the root of a tree to find a truffle, or like getting a morel or something, those are all related to an actual physical tree or some sort of plant that it's, it's best friends with. Um, eh, well, morels are kind of saprophytic, but whatever. So the issue is that if you want to grow them, they try to farm them. Usually what that involves is getting a baby tree and then like dipping the root structure in a bunch of the like liquid culture and then putting it in the ground and being like, please, 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 please grow. Please, 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 please grow. And then hoping that uh, it takes root and then it starts to grow along, along with the plant. Um, but they can't guarantee it. So it's much easier to grow something that's saprophytic such as shiitake, uh, such as oyster mushrooms, a million different colors of oyster mushrooms. So when you get a kit, you're not going to get a kit of any kind of mushroom. Uh, many, 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 many mushrooms are mushrooms that you cannot cultivate, you cannot grow. They only started to grow morels pretty recently um, within the past five years or so, I think. Um, it's, people are awful at growing mushrooms, oddly. You think we're science, but no, they don't really know how to make it work. Um, so yes, you're only looking at specific categories of mushrooms if you're growing them yourself, especially at home. And if you go to shop them, 
uh, if you go to buy them at the store, yes, they are going to be more expensive because they have to be foraged. Uh, they cannot be grown. So if you really love mushrooms, you don't have to pick between what I was talking about, by buying something from Amazon and cutting a hole in it, uh, or what, er what Sarah was saying in terms of foraging stuff yourself, uh, you get to tramp around in the woods in order to get more delicious ones. And then you also get to grow things at home. And there's really fun stuff you could do where, for example, you can take the same log and you can grow shiitake mushrooms on it. Those will break down like lignin, but not cellulose. And then you can put oyster mushrooms on there, which will then break down the cellulose because it doesn't need lignin. And then you can put lion's mane on it or something, which will break down hemicellulose and not cellulose and not whatever. So you can have like different series of plants kind of reusing the same substrate and still producing um, soil. So, or still producing mushrooms. So it's fun, it's delightful. Um, anything you want to do, whether you want to be a scientist and grow a bunch of shrooms, whether you want to wander around in the woods, whether you want to do both of them, um, there is, there is no one best way, unless you're, you know, trying to draw, uh, make psychedelics, in which case get a laminar flow hood and a lot of gloves and get that stuff off the internet, but I wouldn't know. And just to add with what you were just saying, in this like horrific time where we've been sort of, especially in the Midwest here, we've been like really in and out of lockdown and like lost leadership or whatever, whatever. I've been really cautious because I, my parents are older and, you know, I want to keep seeing them. But like foraging has been one of like the best respites from this whole condition because I, I do get to do it with friends. It's easy to socially distance you're out in the woods, like not around other people. You're out in the woods with a, a focus of something you're doing. And it's been something like really satisfying. Then you get to come home and have this, this delicious meal. So like, it's really been this summer um, that I, I've gotten very into mushroom foraging because it's a way to like use, do something healthy outside of my apartment. So that's it. And thank you so much for coming. We will see you all soon. Bye.